Thanks for joining the Inspired Churches podcast. If this is your first time listening in, we're glad you're here. For more information about our church, visit www.inspiredchurches.com. Now, let's listen to the word from Pastor Philip Mwella. We want to give this year, amen. We want to. This is the season to give. This is not the receive. The season to receive. This is the season to give. And um, if there's anything that I would love, if you ask me, Philip, what are some of the major things that you would like your church to be known for? I have to say, giving would be at the top of the list. I want to be known as a giving church. And so, what I want to do this morning is, um, I want to give, but I want to give the proceeds this morning. We're going to take the offerings that we collect this morning. Um, This is above and beyond, obviously, the tithe. And we are going to bless um, a single mama who has been, um, God has been doing a great work in her life. She's climbed some mountains. She's facing some mountains, even in this moment. And um, we would like to um, bless her. And she blessed us last week. I don't know if you were here, but did you hear the spoken word that was given last week? And um, Noemi, we love you. I don't want to make her stand in front of everybody, but, uh, you know, obviously she didn't ask me for this whatsoever. Um, If anybody heard the spoken word last week, you'd understand the powerful testimony that this uh, woman carries. And I believe it's, it's our job to guard and protect, to help come alongside and guard, protect this and so if you were even blessed by the testimony last week, um, then I would just really think twice and before you give today. And as we give, um, we want to bless her and her daughter, and we want them to really just uh, get through this month empowered. And um, again, she didn't ask for this, and there's all kinds of people already, you know, she, there's amazing people coming alongside her. But as a church, I like to bless her. Is that okay? And so I'm going to, I know we like to pray around here. I'm going to say a prayer again because two things, it feels like I need to pray. Just feels like I need to do it to conclude this portion. But also, while I pray, I'll give you an opportunity to go back in your pocket and maybe, you know, exchange the quarter for something a little bit more. And so um, so let's pray one more time. Lord, we pray a blessing over Noemi and uh, over her daughter. And we pray a blessing over uh, those that have come alongside her, uh, those that are working alongside her. Um, I thank you for the call of God over her life. I thank you for the, the gift that you've given her. Lord, the writing and the testimony that will break loose, Lord, many uh, for your honor and your glory. I pray for a, a protection and a guarding of that. And I just pray that you would take this offering and that you would multiply it for your honor and your glory because what we give, Lord, not just goes to her, but we're giving to you. And giving to her, we're giving to you. And so we pray a blessing of her family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now y'all can give. Amen. Good morning, family. I am excited. Sundays are becoming my favorite days of the week. I'm so excited to be here. And I am blessed to have uh, uh, some special visitors and guests with us. And so before I get started, I just want to honor um, a man of God. And I'll give you just a little background um, before I ask him and his, his, uh, and his family, his crew to stand with him. Uh, when God set me out on this journey to plant a church, there's one thing that I decided to do. I stalked as many pastors as I possibly could. I sent emails out. I asked if I could meet them. I went to a, one church 
pretended like I was a first time guest, pretended like I was getting saved. I walked back there. No, just kidding. But I went, I went to one church and like I went, they were like, well, if you're a first time guest, if you've never been to church before, you can go back there and meet the pastor. I was like, I'm going back there, but I'm not trying to, I'm trying to get lunch with this pastor. And it's so funny because I went back there and they gave me like, I got a free card out of it. Y'all know y'all did that too. You know what I mean? You get the free gift card. You don't even need it. You just want it. Um, and so uh, I went back there. I got the free card. And then he came by. I was like, hey, Pastor, how are you? And poor guy. He probably thought I was, wanted to go to his church. Um, but the reality was I was just trying to get lunch with him so I could pick his brain. And so I just kind of went on this wisdom grab just to sit in front of as many people as I possibly could just to hear, hey, what are you doing? How are you doing it? I got a million questions. And so um, I was honored to kind of be on the other end of that um, a couple of months ago when a young man of God had called me and was like, hey, look, man, we're getting ready to plant a church. We're get, we want to we plant. We want to do something new and different in Fremont. That's, that's one of my, come on, that's my city. Anybody from Fremont? Yeah, a few of you from, okay, there's only two, okay. And re the rest of you looked at me crazy. I'm, I know we're Union City. I got it. But Christ needs to be in Fremont, too. And there's amazing churches in Fremont already, but God is doing something great. And so we went, we had lunch. Um, we went to a place called Full Belly in Castro Valley. It used to be called Full Belly, and uh, you guys can see. Um, but we had a great time, and I just got a chance to kind of share with him our journey. And um, I am so honored to have uh, Lita, his uh, crew, and those that are going. So if you and your crew can stand up, can we give them a round of applause? Yeah, man, thanks for being here. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. And, of course, we're family now, and so uh, you probably get a lot of hugs on the way out and high fives and everything else. And so just looking forward to, to hanging with you guys. And anyway, so honored that you guys are here. Appreciate it. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's go to the book of Exodus. Um, Exodus chapter 6. And if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. We'll, we'll also have it on the screen here in a moment. I um, mean, obviously, before I get into... This morning's text, I want to uh, give you guys just a little context of where we're at. Last week, if you guys remember, we entered into an Advent season, and uh, it's been a, such a challenging season for me because it's the first time that I've ever uh, really uh, looked at Advent seriously. And for most of my life, I have always just celebrated the Christmas season and the beautiful birth of the Savior and the gifts and the family and all, all the things that that season brings. And um, entering into the Advent season has caused me to celebrate soberly, um, which, by the way, that's why we'll be having a New Year's service on Sunday night. Um, some of you will get that in a little bit. Um, I, I can say whatever I want to say, but we moved into the evening so some of y'all can get saved. Um, but uh, we, don't record yet. <laughs> don't record it so I can deny it. Um, but entering into the Advent season has been such an educational experience for me. And so as we kind of walk through it together, I'm excited to learn alongside of you what it means to celebrate Christmas, but to uh, look at Christmas soberly. And look at Christmas uh, with, an, uh, with a deeper understanding. I think I explained it to you guys uh, last week, but I, I wanted to kind of share a little bit of, again. Anybody ever heard of the Christmas blues? Um, and I don't necessarily mean a record that you put on and you play and it's like the Christmas blues. Um, what I mean by that is a stress of the holidays. And that holiday stress or that holiday season triggers sadness and depression for many people. 
this time of year especially is difficult because there's an expectation of feeling merry and generous. Um, and according to the National Health Institute, uh, they say this, Christmas is the time of year that many people experience sustained blues and even depression. Hospitals, police forces report high incidence of suicide, attempted suicide. Um, psychiatrists, psychologists, and other mental health professionals report a significant increase in patients complaining of depression during this time. One North American survey reported 45% of respondents dreaded this season. And chances are there may be some of you in here today that dread this season. And as we enter into Advent, and we discuss how Advent challenges us to look at Christmas differently. And within the celebration and within the commemoration of Advent, there is both a warning and an invitation. Advent warns us to be careful. Remember this. Be careful not to get caught up in a shadow because a shadow cannot produce what the reality can. Advent warns us that there is a temptation during Christmas time to place our hope and joy in a hyper-commercialized holiday that does not always deliver what it promises. And I think I even, you know, I, I remember repeating this, but I love Christmas. I do. I love eggnog. I really do. Some of you don't. Uh, I love everything that I watched Rudolph, in fact, last week, and the abominable snowman and the clay figures that look really weird. Yes, and if they were, if they were to invade my dreams, I'd probably be more afraid. And I just realized for the first time that he pulls all the teeth out of the abominable snowman. And I think that several years ago when this first came out, I don't know, is this maybe like the 50s? I don't know when, maybe I could be off. But that was okay. But now with all of you millennials, you're probably really angry that that elf actually pulled the teeth out of an animal that God created. So back then, it was a great idea, and it represented Christmas. Now it would probably be totally, we'd have PETA on the scene, and it would be all bad. I was just thinking, gosh, when millennials watch this, they probably think, that is so torturous, right? You saved Christmas by pulling that poor abominable snowman's teeth all out. All right. I can tell by some of your faces I need to stop with the millennial thing. But Advent warns us, doesn't it? it? It warns us to not get so caught up in all of this. That if you put your trust in a shadow, you will always be let down. Just like we talked about a sign and a wonder, you know, it's the sign points to something beyond itself. The sign in itself can't do anything for you. It can point you into the thing that can do something for you, into the destination that you want to go. So there's a temptation during Christmas to place our hope and joy in a hyper-commercialized holiday that really doesn't deliver everything that it sets out to deliver. But also in response to this, there's an invitation. So it's not just a warning. I think Advent invites us to not just look at Christmas alone. I challenge you, don't just look at Christmas by itself. But during this time, look behind Christmas. Look beyond Christmas, and I challenge you to enter into the whole story. And we got it because the Bible was written. We know how it ends. We know how it begins. And so Advent challenges us to look beyond Christmas and to look into the whole story of Israel, look into the whole story of the church, and look into the whole story, most importantly, of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
So that's essentially what this next six weeks is all about. Hope is on his way. Now, we'll spend the first four weeks, or the, uh, the next three weeks, actually, looking behind Christmas, discovering where Israel got its ancient expectancy for a Messiah. So we'll spend the next couple of weeks looking behind Christmas. And then on Christmas Day, we'll gather as a family for one hour. I feel like i got to say that. We'll gather for one hour. And if you can make it, that's fine. If you can't, no problem. And we'll gather here together. We'll have a beautiful, simple service, I promise. And we will look at Christmas. We will behold the miracle of Christmas Day. And then finally, and I think I'm probably most excited for this, um, I'll ask you guys to consider joining us on New Year's night as we'll finish off this sermon series and we'll look beyond Christmas to a day when Jesus Christ will come again for his church. We call it the second advent, the first advent, his coming. First advent was on Christmas Day. The second advent will be when he returns for his church. So last week, we kicked it off in Exodus. And we'll continue in Exodus this last Sunday. And so why is the Exodus important for us? The Exodus is important because it lays down a basis. Now hear me out. Exodus lays down a basis for people, for God's people, learning to wait in suffering. Exodus lays down a basis for God's people learning to wait in suffering. Those are like two words. You don't like waiting and suffering. I don't like those by themselves. Put them in the same sentence and we got a problem. Wait in suffering. But it also teaches us to hope in suffering. Not just to wait in suffering, but to hope in suffering. To hope in bondage and most importantly to anticipate or look forward to a divine deliverance. Now for Israel, their entire existence was shaped by captivity and exile. So the exodus becomes a story that they'll learn to look back at. Now hear me out. And on the basis of looking back, they'll look ahead to a God who did it once, then he'll do it again. So from this look back, God will raise up prophetic faith in a nation for a once and for all deliverance and a once and for all deliverer. Captivity, starting with Exodus and throughout the history of Israel, will produce a prophetic faith inside of the nation for a once and for all deliverance and a once and for all deliverer. Now, we can break down Exodus, the first 15 chapters of Exodus, into like two basic themes. Oppression and liberation, or distress and deliverance. And so last Sunday, we discussed this distress and oppression. And I'll give you a brief recap. For 400 years plus, God's people endured harsh captivity. If you remember, they were dealt with shrewdly. They were afflicted with heavy burdens and ruthlessly made to work as slaves. And from this, we learned three realities. The first reality is this. God's people are no strangers to oppression. Just because you belong to him does not mean that you'll be shielded from pain. Second thing we learned was this. Many times God's people must endure what seems like heavier burdens than those around them. Can I say that slowly? Let this sink in. Many times God's people must endure what seems like heavier burdens than those around them. 
And it's in these times that the enemy's goal is to get you to abandon the idea that you are God's people. Oftentimes, the question that haunts us most in these moments is, if I'm God's child, why is this happening to me? But perhaps the better question we should start learning to ask is, what am I carrying that the enemy is so afraid of? What is it about me that God has chosen, and what is it about me that there's an affliction and a burden over my life? What do I carry? Because if you remember the story of Exodus, the afflictions and the heavy burdens were the result of the fear of God's people, realizing whose they are. And finally, number three, God's people can take comfort in suffering, knowing that God hears, God remembers, God sees, God knows, God intervenes. And I want to add briefly before we move on, the people of God can take comfort in suffering because the people of God are the only people on the planet who have purpose in their suffering. If I have to suffer, I'm, I'm willing to suffer for something. We're the only people on the planet that have a purpose in our suffering. So this morning I want to look at the deliverance and liberation aspect of Exodus. We're going to break it down into three parts for you note takers in here. The first part is this. We're going to look at the method of this deliverance. The second part is we're going to look at the memorial of this deliverance. And you know what's coming, another M. i got to figure out an M, right? The method, the memorial, and then the last one is we're going to focus on the Messiah in this deliverance. You like that, babe? Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. My wife just laughed, and I just had to take <laughs> My wife and my mom, all I need is them in the front seats. We're good. We don't need no one else to show up. Now, if y'all please show up. But I'm just saying, if they showed up, I'd be like, I'd still go at it. Here we go, Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to read verse 1, and then we're going to skip down to 5 and read 5 through 7. I'll guide you through it. So Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now skip to verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. One of the phrases here that I think highlights best the method by which God will deliver his people is in verse 6. And we're looking at the method firstly. Verse 6 says this, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. This idea of an outstretched arm is symbolic for both influence and power. For example, in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the arms of Moab and Pharaoh are broken. In 1 Samuel, the arm of Eli and the arm of his father's house are cut off. Because the arm wielded the sword, it was also a sign of oppression. But the arms were also used as a means of support. So to refuse to come to someone's rescue is synonymous with breaking their arms. Now we know that God is spirit, 
and as spirit, spirit doesn't have any arms. So when applied anthropomorphically to God, the arms refer to his power, specifically his power to deliver, his power to support and hold up, and even his power to conquer. Deuteronomy calls, this is beautiful, listen to this. Deuteronomy calls God's arms everlasting. Isaiah refers to his arms as arms of protection. David writes in the Psalms that Yahweh is sometimes like a warrior who smites his enemies with his arms. But David also refers to the arms as Yahweh as holy. I like David. It was like a man's man, right? So David will sit down and like write a poem about a little bird tweeting. Play a little, you know, play a little harpist. And most guys will be like, okay, that's why I don't go to church. But then in like the next sentence, he'll write another song about cutting Goliath's head off and marching around the city, holding it up and telling everybody, look what I got. And so David is just this interesting, like worshiping warrior, like this man that like gets in touch with his feelings, but also understands his strength. <laughs> right. For you millennials, you don't care. <laughs> I had to. So David writes in the Psalms that Yahweh is sometimes like a warrior who smites enemies with his arms. But David also refers to the, the, the arms of Yahweh as holy arms. So here in Exodus 6, his outstretched arm is symbolic for a miraculous intervention. That's key. I want you guys to get that. His outstretched arms is synonymous, symbolic with a miraculous intervention. His divine demonstration, his method for freeing his people from bondage. So chapter 6 opens with God making this epic statement to Moses. You ready for this epic statement? Here it is. God says this, you shall not pass. No, he says, you shall see what I will do. That's an epic statement. You shall see what I shall do. Like, how epic is that for the God of the universe to look at Moses and to say, you shall see what I am going to do. I got something planned out, and it's going to make you trip. In other words, what Egypt and Israel are about to witness, and really what the entire world will observe if for future generations, in the next several chapters is God unleashing a series of Ten miraculous yet devastating events that will ultimately free his people. We're going to go through this quickly. You guys are doing really well. And I promise you, I see the time. In chapter 7, God will turn the water of the Nile into blood. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine uh, Niles Canyon, right, turning into blood? Think about it. But this isn't Niles Canyon. This is the longest river in Africa. And the most, most important source of water to the Egyptians, it will be rendered useless and grotesque. Have you ever smelt just blood? A lot of it. Imagine all the creatures inside of the Nile that will die. Chapter 8 then warns us of swarms of frogs covering the land. Uh, but this is just the beginning of swarms because there will be swarms of gnats. There will be swarms of flies. There will be pestilence on cattle. There will be boils and sores. And locusts will all be endured by the Egyptians during this time. 
I got to pause right here because we have the luxury of just reading this real quick and moving on. I mean, have you ever went into your favorite restaurant, saw a little cockroach walking by, right? Has that disturbed you at all? Maybe it's not your favorite restaurant. In fact, you don't go back, right? Some of us like that happens in my kitchen, and that's okay. God is good. He's still faithful. We had a, we had a, we had a, we had a little, little, uh, not a rat, a mouse problem in our house, and it was so funny because uh, this mouse, like, ruined our marriage for about a week because we were, like, arguing and, like, debating on how to trap this, and Jamila would scream, and I'm like, stop screaming. It's running around. Like, please, you know it's in here. It's coming. You are, get yourself ready or go to the other room, right? And so I got to be honest with you. We fought. We did. We did. Your pastor fights for sure. And no, we didn't fight that bad, right, babe? Um, so we made, we made a, we made a. So, I remember it was running around all over the place, and I was setting down traps, and I was using, poor, poor Philip. I was using his toys as traps, his little baby gate. I, like, trapped him in, confined him to an area, and I was like, Jamila, just go to the other room, right? And so we finally caught that one. No, actually, we did it. He actually ended up getting away. I wake up the next morning to go into the bathroom, and it just kind of goes all over the place, right? And you know what it did? It made a mistake. It decided to crawl up our bathroom shower curtain and jump into the tub. So I grabbed the bathroom curtain with my mighty outstretched arm. That's not on my notes, by the way. <laughs> and I grabbed it and I pulled it in and it's just like, it's just like right around all over the place. I set the water to boil. Should I get off the altar? <laughs> Should I even be telling this story right now? I'm not. I just lost some of my millennials. Oh, come on. God created him. We can kill him. <laughs> I feel like you guys already know what's going to happen. So I, I turned the water on. And it, it's like running around. And then it just got full. Yeah. It was like, I named him too. So, cookie. <laughs> little cookie. And so, you know, he's just... And he's going in circles, and then all of a sudden, it slows. He starts to tilt. He spins around. <laughs> Dong. And then he looked like I was in Hawaii. You know when you just got to sit there? And... <laughs> Except he wasn't on vacation. <laughs> Babe, you're supposed to get, tell me I can't go off topic because then my time gets out, ran out. But So we have cockroaches. We got little, but you know, eh. What's my point? <laughs> Merry Christmas. God bless. That's it. <laughs> but, so Egypt, I guess what I'm trying to say is my whole point in this whole dramatic thing here was, you know, how we get for just seeing one or two little things, right? Um, and we're talking about this miracle. We're talking about like a land covered in frogs, like blacked out in gnats and flies 
We're not talking about a little pest problem where you just call the pest control guy. We're talking about never imagine him being in your clothes and in your closet. And, and we're not talking about one or two. We're talking about multiple of these things, eating your cattle. Do you understand how devastating this is? Covering an entire nation. Are you guys hearing me? I think that was worth it. And then we move on to chapter 9 and we get past the swarms and then it starts to hail. But not California hail. This is hell so large that scripture tells us if it were to strike it, when it did strike a human or an animal from the top, it would kill them. Talking about large hailstones. And then finally, we get to the last two epic plagues. And one is darkness for three days. Darkness over the land. Complete darkness to the point where they said you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. Complete and utter darkness for three days. And finally, uh, a well-known plague that some of you may or may not be familiar with, but just to let you know, is the plague of death. Finally, it will be the plague that kind of puts Pharaoh over the edge, and all the firstborn sons in the land will die, including Pharaoh's. Now, when you stop to think about the method, right, in which God chose to deliver his people, we can't help but ask ourselves why. Why so devastating? Why so miraculous? What is it about those methods? And there's a lot of answers that are out there. There are a lot of different thoughts and ideas, and there are some really great theories on the plagues and how God challenged, used the plague to challenge each of the gods of Israel. And, um, but I don't want to get too deep into that. Actually, what I want to kind of, I just want to answer simply this. God wanted to make sure that Egypt and Israel and the world would know that nobody else did it but him. Nobody else but him. It was God and nobody else. Eleven times, in fact, in chapter 7, I'm sorry, eleven times in seven chapters, um, the Lord declares, and they will know that I am the Lord. He says that throughout the entire Exodus ordeal, and they will know that I am the Lord. Darkness will come, and they will know that I am the Lord. There is a continual focus that I am the Lord. This is taking place so that they will know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh will know. Egypt will know. Israel will know. The world will know. Now listen, this emphasis of knowing the Lord lifts the plagues beyond the function of punishment. A lot of us think it's just punishment. It's not. It's greater than that. The plagues are not God's revenge on Pharaoh. They're the Lord's intention, the Lord's intention to make himself known. Here is the purpose of the, of the method, so that Pharaoh and his people may recognize and submit to my authority. I am not sending the plagues to devastate Egypt. I'm sending the plagues so that Pharaoh and Egypt may submit to my word. So Pharaoh and Egypt will be confronted by God's power. They'll have a front row seat to the miraculous. And Pharaoh will find himself with a choice to make. You ready for this? Here's the choice. To soften his heart or to harden his heart. To submit or not to submit is the question. I want you guys to hear this. And I, I'm just going to look at this from a different angle. But sometimes the adversity that we face, the confrontations that we go through, are more of a sign of divine intervention than even a sign of judgment. Sometimes these things that are taking place in our lives that we think are so demonic are so much of an attack is actually the hand of God Make it, seeing if you're going to stiffen up your back or if you're going to submit to his word and his will. When will you stop running from me? 
When will you stop hardening your heart? When will you listen to the advice of the elders that I've placed in your life and begin to push beyond your wisdom, your understanding, your wants, and your desires? When will you learn? The method, the memorial. Second thing I want to look at. The first nine plagues are described briefly, but Scripture will spend more time surrounding the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, because two major things will take place as a result of this tenth plague. The first one is this, Pharaoh will finally let God's people go. And the second thing is this, there will be an institution of a celebration or a ceremony called the Passover. Now let's take a look at the first thing. Pharaoh will finally let the people go as a result of this tenth plague. Exodus chapter 12 and if you can turn there, you can. You can follow me. We'll have it up there as well. Exodus chapter 12, tw verse 29 through 32. Two reasons why uh, we focus on this 10th plague. The first reason is Pharaoh will finally let his people go. Now hear this out. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and this is what he said, up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said, take your flocks, take your herds as you have said, and be gone. And then I love, he added, and bless me too, please. Bless me also. The final plague of death pushes Pharaoh to his breaking point. But the second thing that I want to focus on is not only does it push Pharaoh to his breaking point, but the Passover is instituted. The Passover will be instituted as a way to memorialize this great deliverance. In fact, Exodus 13.3 says this, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Now I want to focus on the Passover for a moment. The Hebrew word Passover means to pass over or pass by and is derived from the instructions that God gives his people in Exodus 12 as they're about to be delivered. Listen to what God says in Exodus 12. In verses 3 through 7, he says, they're told to take a lamb. Are you with me? Take a lamb in accordance with your household. Make sure that that lamb is no older than one year old and that that lamb is without spot or blemish. Then at twilight, every household will kill this lamb and apply the blood to the doorposts of their house. Are you with me? Verse 13 tells us, when I see the blood, I will pass over it. Likewise, in verse 23, it says this, the Lord will pass over the door. And verse 27 repeats, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. So what exactly does Passover mean? Exodus 23 answers this for us. The Lord will pass over the door, here it is, and will not allow the destroyer to enter in to slay you. So let me slow down. Tenth plague. The killing of the firstborn sons in all of Egypt. The only shelter from this plague is the blood of a blemished, unblemished, unspotted lamb. And you were to sacrifice this lamb, you were to take his blood, and the, and, and the Israelites would paint it over the doorpost. 
And the Lord says, as a result, I will pass over your house and the destroyer will not come in and take your children. So to pass over means to protect or stand guard. In other words, the Lord himself will block the entry of the destroyer. He will become a protective covering for his people. And they will find their security in his presence. Now watch. And it's the blood of the lamb smeared over the doorpost that will ensure that the destroyer does not enter into the household with death. Let me say that again. And as I'm saying that, if we have will come up, and it's the blood of the lamb smeared over the doorpost of the house that will ensure the destroyer does not enter into the household with death. Now watch this. If you're still at Exodus 12, I'm going to read verse 13 and 14. Remember, the method and the memorial. The method was God's outstretched arm. The Passover is one of the memorials to commemorate what God did. And here's the memorial explained. Exodus 12, 13 through 14. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. Now this is important. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. A memorial is something designed to preserve the memory of an event or a person. It means to remind, to remember, to recollect. You see, this would not be the last time that God's people would ever find themselves in bondage. This would not be the last time that God's people would ever find themselves in exile, in oppression, in slavery. In fact, if you read the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, God's people are characterized by a people always in some sort of foreign land, wandering and filling in exile. So the memorial was never intended for just a look back by itself. The power of a memorial is not in the look back. That's part of the memorial. The power of the memorial is in the look back combined with the look forward. Because I look back to remember if God did it for me then, then he can do it for me again. The power of the memorial that God institutes. And here's another crazy thing is, you know what Israel used to do? You know what their children used to do? When the things like the Passover, they'd celebrate these memorials. God would always instruct to let your children know what took place this day. We have a whole generation of children that don't know the Lord because the parents forgot to make memorials. Forgot to make memorials. And you know what the kids are supposed to do? Daddy, can you tell me that story? They were supposed to walk the children by when they crossed the Jordan River and they set up stones. There were memorials. And when they would walk by and the kids would see the stones and say, can you tell me more about this? And guess what the parent was supposed to do? The parent was supposed to pass down the stories about God's power. We need to be a people that makes memorials, don't we? If you find yourself in captivity now, 
or if you find yourself in a place of slavery now, you look back at the memorial. You look back at the victory. You look back and you remember the time when you were in exile and God did it for you then, then he'll do it for you again. And if you're in a season where you feel like you're celebrating, if you're in a season where you feel like you're walking, to trust me, a season will come where you'll go low again. Trust me. But if you're in a season where you're in a celebration, well, then make a memorial. And do two things. Make a memorial and then be sure to tell your children about it. This brings us to our final point, and I'll be brief. We did the method by which God delivered them. We did the memorial. And lastly, we talk about the Messiah in all of this. What in the world does the Exodus have to do with Christmas? Well, there's three pictures I want to paint. Number one is this. The deliverance of God always comes by miraculous intervention. God's deliverance is always a miracle, so you can't get it confused or twisted that you did it yourself. Right? Because there's a tendency for us to try to take take some credit. God says, I'm going to do it in such a way you can't take credit for this. Scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. There was no man involved. Do you understand that? It's the doctrine of the virgin birth. There was no man involved. Do you know that there are some people today that think that we can have Christianity without the virgin birth? Not true. There's, the doctrine of the virgin birth is important because it reminds us that the Savior came by way of miraculous intervention. That no man could produce what God was about to do. There wasn't man's fingerprint wasn't on the Messiah's miraculous coming into this earth. Deliverer was coming. Deliverance was coming, but not by the hands of man. Well, figuratively and literally. Second thing. Luke chapter 2, verse 11 says this. For unto you, born this day in the city of David, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now I want you to know, what is the city of David? The city of David refers to a place where King David was from, Bethlehem. It's also where Jesus Christ was born. You guys know what this city was known for in its time? During the birth of Christ, Bethlehem was known as a town that would raise sheep up for sacrifices. In fact, many Israelites, when looking for Passover lambs, would prefer purchasing their lambs from Bethlehem dealers in their day. Ironic, prophetic, coincidence, whatever you want to call it. However you determine to look at it, you can't deny the significance of the Passover lamb and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God knows what he's doing. Don't you think he knows what he's doing? Yeah. Lastly, we'll finish with this final look. Matthew 1, 21 says this. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people. He will deliver his people. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's plan. His birth moves us from the type to the anti-type, from the shadow to the reality, from the sign to the actual coming of the one that the sign points to. We move from the lamb of Exodus to the lamb of God. 
We move from the deliverance of a physical slavery to the deliverance from our sin. We move from Pharaoh and Egypt to the kingdom of darkness and the oppression of Satan. We move from Moses and the blood of the Lamb that repels the destroyer to Jesus and his shed blood on the cross that removes sin and repels death. For Israel... A people who would routinely find themselves in exile, looking back at Exodus would produce hope for a future Exodus. Likewise, for the church, you and I, looking back at Christmas to the first advent of Jesus causes us to look ahead in anticipation when he comes back again. Our present exile and evil. Our present dark place should produce a longing, a crying, a looking ahead to a future exodus. We preach the scriptures as a memorial that point to the one who's coming. Now listen, the promise for Israel and the promise for the church is Jesus Christ. This is it. I'm done. Here it is. The promise for Israel and the promise for the church is Jesus Christ. He has come. And he will come again. That is the essence of Advent. Hear me? The promise for Israel and the promise for the church is Jesus Christ. He has come. He will come again. And that is the essence of Advent. So as we step into the Christmas season, we are reminded to look behind Christmas, look at Christmas, and look beyond Christmas. And we are invited as a family to look at the whole story of the anticipation of a deliverer who will bring deliverance. And we find ourselves as the church in the same place that Israel found itself, waiting for the coming of her Messiah, anticipating it. So if you feel down, if you feel like a loss of joy in this season, if you feel like Christmas has just not, it just doesn't feel like it used to. Maybe you've said that to yourself. Christmas just doesn't feel like it used to feel. I want you to know and I want to invite you to look beyond Christmas. Because Christmas is just a shadow of something greater. The reality of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Bow your heads. Inspired Churches aims to be a church that the city loves. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon on Journey. Come back next week as Pastor Philip continues on the six-part series. For more information about how you can get involved or about our community, at www.inspirechurches.com